Hello, everyone. This is Inside the Americas. Here's a look at what's coming up in today's show. California hit by two mass shootings in just 48 hours. Those massacres igniting the gun control debate in the U.S. once again. Then we'll take you to a city in Mexico, home to one of the most violent drug cartels in the country. It's so omnipresent, there's even a chapel dedicated to drug traffickers. And with damage from the storming of Brazil's capital earlier this month, estimated in the millions, we'll meet the team of restorers working to repair artworks and artifacts caught in the crossfire. I'm Jeannie Godula. This week, the U.S. state of California was rocked by two mass shootings just two days apart. The alleged perpetrators in both those attacks were older men of Asian descent who left 18 people dead. The massacre is just the latest in a long line of mass shootings in the United States. In the last three years, there have been more than 600. That's an average of almost two a day. Well, to talk more about this now, I'm joined by Jacqueline Schildkraut. You're the Interim Executive Director, Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium at the Rockefeller Institute of Government. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. Jacqueline, we see these kinds of mass shootings over and over in the U.S., something you rarely see here in France or in many other countries around the world. Over the last two decades, more school-aged children in America have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. I know it's difficult, but if you had to boil it down to why this is such a uniquely American problem, what would you say? You know, unfortunately, it's not something we could boil down to one thing. Um, of course, we do know that America has a very, uh, a very dissimilar rate of gun ownership and gun prevalence in our nation compared to other countries. Um, you know, certainly that exacerbates situations such as the strains and stresses that we feel coming out of the pandemic, also a culture of toxic masculinity um, and just violence in general. Jacqueline, one thing that seems interesting uh, when we look at these last two mass shootings is that the suspects don't seem to fit the usual type of profile we see in these kind of attacks. Can you read anything into that? No, and I think it's very important we caution. There's actually not a profile of mass shooters. Um, you know, certainly we know that most of them are men, um, which follows the line of what we know about male offending. Men are much more likely to pick up a firearm than women. Um, but it is unusual that we see uh, perpetrators of this age. Most mass shooters, you know, sort of average out around 33 years old. And so it's it's definitely unique. Jacqueline, your association believes gun violence is a public policy problem. What exactly has to be done to make these kinds of mass shootings stop once and for all? You know, I think first and foremost is we have to stop resigning ourselves as a nation that this is just part of who we are. Um, one of the things that we know about mass shootings, particularly compared to other forms of gun violence, is that there is a considerable amount of preparation, preparation that goes into them, um, that people don't wake up and snap and decide on a Tuesday that they're gonna go do this. There's a lot of planning. And with that planning comes opportunities for identification, intervention, and ultimately prevention. So I think from a policy standpoint, we have to focus more on being proactive and being a lot less reactive. Mm -hmm. Well, this carnage did prompt President Joe Biden to renew calls for Congress to act quickly on an assault weapons ban, or, or at least for some legislation that would raise the minimum purchase age for assault weapons in the states to 21. Do you see that being passed anytime soon? It would be very difficult to pass, um, especially with a Republican-controlled House. I think the challenge is that that's 
something that's viewed as an infringement upon the Second Amendment because it's rest restricting a specific type of firearm. Um, of course, we know that a assault weapons ban has been successful in helping to reduce the number of mass shootings. But I think with guns being such a polarized issue in our country, it would be very difficult to get that legislation passed at this time. Jacqueline, we just have time for one last question. Do you see at all in your lifetime America changing the way it thinks about guns? I wish that I could say yes, but it's unlikely. Um, you know, I think that we all agree that the loss of one life to gun violence is absolutely one too many, but how we all come to the table and respond to that, I, I don't know how yet. All right, Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on France 24. That's Jacqueline Schildkraut from the Rockefeller Institute for Government. Next now to the town of Culiacan in Mexico, where the powerful Sinaloa drug cartel is in constant conflict with authorities. It was there that 29 people were killed in a standoff earlier this month over the arrest of the son of infamous drug lord El Chapo. Reporters from our sister station, France 2, went to Culiacan to find out more about the cartel and its incredible hold on the city. Culiacan, Mexico, the nerve center of the Sinaloa cartel, one of the most powerful and dangerous in the world. One million residents and recently the scene of the dramatic arrest of El Chapo's son, Ovidio Guzman, an international drug baron. For an entire day, law enforcement and drug traffickers clashed in Culiacan, burning trucks to block traffic, a rain of bullets from both sides. At the city's airport, members of the cartel even tried to prevent the plane carrying their leader from taking off. Amid the chaos, passengers on a commercial flight caught in the crossfire. Because of drug traffickers, to go to northern Culiacan today, you have to be accompanied by the army, machine guns in hand, and a convoy worthy of a war zone. Along the journey, you may also be followed by the punteros. These men on motorcycles responsible for warning the cartel leaders about army movements. For security reasons, some soldiers' faces are obscured. We patrol here so the population feels safe. We have to be here and mark our presence on the territory. In the streets, when the army wants to patrol the area, it is out of the question to approach Ovidio Guzman's house. Too risky. Bullet holes and casings on the ground bear witness to the violence of the fighting. Damage also clearly visible to the neighboring house. Look there. You can see the bullet holes that hit this window and also on the other. I was very scared because the house shook. I have family who came to pick me up and take me somewhere else. But you still know it's there. Clashes between drug traffickers and police are frequent. These crosses along the streets memorialize the dead on both sides. But when you ask locals about the cartel's role in the city, their answers are vague. I don't feel like I have an opinion because it's a very delicate subject here. No, I really don't want to comment on that. Here, the majority of the population either works with drug traffickers or has a connection to them. With an estimated $3.5 billion in revenue, the Sinaloa cartel has a hold on the city, 
its presence so significant, there's now a chapel dedicated to drug traffickers. It celebrates Jesus Malverde, a Robin Hood figure in Sinaloa State who has been associated with drug traffickers since the 1970s. Jesus Juarez Maso is the owner. When the narcos come to pray here, they ask to not be arrested. But you know, they're not all bad. They help people, while the government doesn't always. I think it's a job like any other. If they don't do the job, someone else will. It's an opinion that says nothing of the cartel's brutality, one of the most violent in the country. Earlier this month in Brazil, thousands of opponents of new leftist president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva stormed the capital after refusing to accept the defeat of Lula's right-wing predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. And as our Catherine Kadir Clifford reports now, the trail of destruction they left behind hit right at the heart of Brazilian culture. An ornate vase, a doll, a silver jewel-encrusted dagger, these broken parts of Brazil's cultural heritage are being carefully pieced back together by experts. In a certain way, the impact is incalculable. These assets represent and carry with them the history of our parliament. Assets inside the presidential palace are the history of Brazilian art itself, the history of Brazil. On January 8th, supporters of Brazil's far-right former president, Jair Bolsonaro, who refused to accept his election defeat, invaded the country's Congress, presidential palace and Supreme Court. They left a trail of destruction, which experts sought to remedy as soon as they were able to access the scene, rushing to collect even the tiniest pieces. The fragments were scattered everywhere, both in the House and in the Senate. So we grabbed some flashlights and started looking for fragments. It was like a scavenger hunt. For staff at the Senate Museum's Restoration Lab, the aftermath of the raid has been emotionally draining. It's about much more than aesthetics. We've spent years preserving these works. And suddenly, in one insane act, we saw all our work go down the drain, literally. Many of the damaged works were ceremonial gifts brought by world leaders during official visits. The total cost of the destruction hasn't yet been established, though the Senate president estimated the damage in his congressional chamber alone in the millions. All eyes were on Hollywood this week as the nominations for this year's Oscars came out, and it was the multiverse-skipping sci-fi indie hit Everything Everywhere All at Once that led the pack with 11 nominations, including for Michelle Yeoh, the first Asian actor nominated for Best Actress, and a Best Supporting Actor nod for Comeback Kid Kei Hui Kwan, the former child star of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Nine out of the ten Best Picture nominees were theatrical releases, a major turnaround from last year when streaming services dominated. For the first time ever, two sequels, Avatar, The Way of Water, and Top Gun Maverick, were nominated for Best Picture. The Oscars will be held this March 12th with hopefully a bit less drama than last year's ceremony that was marked by a Best Actor win for Will Smith and that infamous slap. Well, that wraps it up for this Inside the Americas. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you again next time for all the news from North to South.